0: It's a privileged day to have Dr. Paul Tripp with us to, to preach. Uh, many of you have read uh, books by Dr. Tripp. He's he's written many, many, or you've uh, learned from his website on, on paultrippministries.org. Uh, he is a pastor, one of the pastors at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's the pastor of Center City Ministries. His son, Darnay, lives here in Macon, uh, at least for the present time. He's a sportscaster with Channel 13 and... Um, uh, Paul and his wife Luella were here this weekend because uh, Darnay was recently engaged, and they came to celebrate that time with him, and we're grateful he could be here with us to preach. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church.
1: It is uh, good to be with you this morning. The last time I was in Macon for the purpose of ministry, it was on a weekend where I didn't know I was supposed to be in Macon. I was in my office in Philadelphia on Friday thinking I had a weekend to relax and uh, walked by somebody else's office and saw on their computer screen a prayer request for my weekend in Macon. I uh, ran to my assistant's office to look for a file with um, some information. All there was there was a ticket to Macon. I called Llewellyn and said, I'm going to Georgia for the weekend. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going. I arrived in Macon after my flight had been delayed and the pastor of the church picked me up. I didn't want to say to him, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be talking about. So I just started interviewing him about five minutes from the church. He said, you know, we're really concerned about our teenagers in our congregation, and I knew what I was supposed to be talking about. I want you to know I knew I was going to do this today. I was a sophomore in college and something was wrong. I was at a Christian college and I kept hearing about the faith of people, faith that was courageous and bold and activist and motivated. And my faith seemed like none of that. It wasn't very bold, it wasn't very courageous. In fact, it was often fearful and timid and doubtful. And I, that morning, about six o'clock in the morning, I had my head down on my desk there next to my Bible, and I was saying to God, What's wrong with me? Why don't I have this kind of faith? What makes for bold faith? You've noticed it. Some people's faith just seems bold and courageous. And other people's faith just seems like a constant struggle. A struggle of fear. A struggle of doubt. A struggle of timidity. Why? If you had a pencil and a piece of paper today and you were going to write down, here are the ingredients of a bold, courageous faith what would you write? If you had to describe your own faith, what kinds of adjectives would you use? Is your faith one of rest and courage and hope? Or is it riddled with worry, panic, sometimes active, other times... Paralyzed. What is bold faith? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 7. We're going to look at a rather unremarkable little account in Mark. The star of Mark is Jesus. Mark is demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God sent to be Savior of the world, of awesome power and awesome compassion and awesome wisdom. But then Mark moves to this story of this dear unnamed woman. Now we know from the Gospels that these stories, these accounts, were very carefully put together. No... no. Apostle could write everything in a gospel that Jesus did. And so they select the accounts and they arrange them for a particular purpose. It's very clear that this story is set against the faith of the Pharisees and the faith of the disciples. Mark 7, in the beginning, we see the, the shocking pride and legalism of the Pharisees. Their faith was all about externals, all about being seen in men. It probably wasn't faith at all. It was more self-reliance and self-righteousness, self-congratulatory religion. It really had nothing to do with the Messiah. In fact, the Messiah stood right in front of these Pharisees and they didn't even recognize Him. And then you have the faith of the disciples. They were... They were followers of Christ, but you could probably call them the Fearsome Twelve, because they they just didn't seem to get it most of the time. Even though they had seen tremendous miracles of Jesus, even though they experienced His amazing teaching, in moments of difficulty, they would panic. When that crowd of 5,000 people is there and Jesus says, gather whatever food is available and I'll feed them, the disciples think he's crazy. Where's their faith? When they're in the boat with Jesus and the storm gets, gets rough, they panic. Even though the Messiah is there in the boat with them. Now it's very clear that Mark, in contrast to these people who you would think were people of faith. He tells the story of this woman. Let me read for you. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, unless you're familiar with the cultural setting, you don't really get the radical boldness of this woman's faith. Jesus was trying to get away into private. We we see this again and again in Mark, and he, he never seemed to be able to do it because people would pursue him no matter what. And he's in a private home, and this... Woman follows him into the house, presses through the crowd, absolutely determined that she's going to get herself in front of Jesus because she's facing something that she has no power to defeat herself. Now, the Bible tells us about her. She was a Gentile, that means she was an outcast. It was outrageous that she would actually think that this Jewish rabbi would pay her any attention at all. It would have been quite typical for him to say, get out of my sight. But that didn't stop her. She was a woman, which gave her even less station in the culture she was in. And she had intruded in a private home. Quite amazing. Now what propels this kind of boldness? What makes this woman able to step through these cultural and ethnic uh, and religious boundaries to say, I am going to get myself in front of Jesus no matter what? What makes for bold faith? Well, there are really three ingredients that are highlighted in this passage. First is desperation. Desperation. This woman was facing something that she had long since realized she had no power whatsoever to defeat an evil spirit, had taken over her daughter. You can imagine the horror of this. And there was nothing that this woman could do to deliver her daughter in any way. She was utterly, completely, totally desperate. I would argue with you this morning that spiritual desperation is actually a very good thing. The problem is we don't like desperation. We are afraid of desperation. We do, we do anything we can to convince ourselves that we're not desperate. You know, when, when somebody comes to you and they point out a sin or a weakness and failure in you, how do you respond? Do you say thank you? You're right, I am a very imperfect person. I do have sin inside of me. And I need people to point out my weaknesses of failure. If you would do that more for me, I would feel so loved. I don't think that's how you respond. Often when that happens, what happens is we activate our inner lawyer. Yes, you have one. And you begin defending yourself. You, you tell yourself that you're not actually that bad, that this person has misunderstood you. In fact, often we turn the tables and we, we want this person to know that we're not in fact the only sinner in the room. We have a list. Now you don't want to think that you're needy. You don't want to think that you're a sinner. Listen, there's a way in which we're just as desperate as this woman was. Because although the power of sin has been broken in the cross of Jesus Christ, the presence of sin still remains. And you have no ability whatsoever, none, nada, to defeat that sin that's inside of you. You are in desperate need of grace. And in case you hadn't figured this out, you need that grace as much today as you did the first day you believed. I say this to people all the time and when I say it they laugh, but I'm really quite serious. No one's more influential in your life than you are, because no one talks to you more than you do. See, he laughed. You're in a constant conversation with yourself. Most of us have learned it's best not to move our lips. Because people will think we're crazy. But you are in a constant conversation with yourself. You're telling yourself things about you all the time. And the things you say to you about you are profoundly important. What are you telling yourself about you? I get to say this because I get to leave. But everybody in this room is a very skilled self-swindler. You see, when... If you're a believer, the heart of stone has been taken out of you and it's been replaced with a heart of flesh. Now what this means is, when you do something wrong, your conscience will bother you. And when your conscience bothers you, you only have one of two choices. You either admit that what you've done is sin and you place yourself once again under the justifying mercies of Christ, and you receive once again His forgiveness, or, pay attention here, you erect some system of self-justification that makes that sin acceptable to your conscience. We're so good at doing that. A man who's at the mall lusting will tell himself that it wasn't lust, he's just a man who enjoys beauty. A woman who's at the end of a long conversation of gossip will tell herself that it was just a very extended personal prayer request. (laughs) A parent who's just screamed at their children in ugly, impatient parental anger will say, that wasn't anger, I was speaking like one of God's prophets. You see, here's what's deadly about that. To the degree that you are able to convince yourself that you're righteous, that you're not desperate, to that degree you quit seeking God's grace. Listen, your weakness is not an obstacle to God's grace working in your life. Your delusions of strength are. Are you willing to be desperate? In a way that means no obstacle, no cultural thing, not reputation, nothing is going to keep you from getting what Jesus and Jesus alone can give you. You don't care what people think about you. You don't care about time and schedule. Because you know how deep your need actually is. I love... The desperation of this woman. But there's a second thing hope. Clearly, this is a woman of hope. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but hope always has an expectation and always has an object. You expect something and you place your hope in something. It's very clear. This woman had a target. She had a destination. She wasn't going from house to house hoping that somebody would be there who could help her. This wasn't research. This woman had heard of this man, Jesus. She had heard of what she had done, and she had made a conscious decision that this one has the ability, has the power, has the willingness to help me. And I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get myself in front of this powerful man. That's hope. I would ask you this morning, be honest. What are you putting your hope in? I think it's very sad that there are masses of Christians who are looking horizontally for what they've already been given in Christ. People are searching for identity in their job or in their relationships or in their possessions when they've been given identity in Christ. They're searching for meaning and purpose in the things of this created world again, in accomplishments and, and possessions, when they've already been given ultimate meaning and purpose in Christ. They're searching for that inner sense of well-being, that inner peace that every human being wants, and they're looking to, it, to people to give it to them, or to possessions to give it to them, or their job to give it to them, and it will never happen. In counseling, I've had a thousand wives at least say this to me. All I ever wanted was a husband who would make me happy. I'm thinking that man's cooked. Because he should nourish and cherish you, he should love you deeply. He should care for you and serve you. But he must not be the source of your happiness. That man can't carry that load. No one here has married the fourth member of the Trinity. I love the focused hope of this woman. This woman could have sung the hymn we just got done singing. You could imagine her singing those words as she's going down the pathway, following Jesus, heading toward this house, planning on intruding on private space. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's Jesus that I need. And I will place my hope in Jesus. You know why so many of the things we put hope in disappoint us? Because it's the wrong object. Jesus alone can fill that place in your heart. He alone can give you the kind of identity that every human being wants. He alone can give you that deepest sense of well-being even though everything else in your life seems unstable. But there's another thing here. It's really revealed in a rather shocking conversation between Jesus and this woman. Look in your Bibles again if you would. The woman has fallen down before Jesus. She's begging him to deliver her daughter. And Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh, my. Mark has has worked very hard to demonstrate that Jesus has awesome compassion. In fact, there is a spiritual equation that, that is a theme in Mark. Here it is. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. This is suitable to put on your refrigerator. Here's the equation. DP plus DC equals EYN. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. The problem is in this moment, Jesus doesn't seem very compassionate. In his word picture, guess who the dog is? Here's this woman who has staked everything to get herself in front of Jesus, and Jesus responds to her in this way. What in the world is going on? You see, I would propose to you that Jesus is not seeking to drive this woman away. What he's seeking to do is draw out of her even more faith. Here's what he's saying by these words. He's saying, Woman, you're a Gentile. You're not part of my covenant people. I have made special promises to the people Israel. I have promised my special blessing to them, but you're not one of them. Now, some of us would have said, forget it then. You're not going to treat me this way, and we would have walked out of the house disappointed and angry. What this woman does in this moment is remarkable. She says, actually, Lord, the children and the dogs feed at the same time. Because when the children are fed their portions, they spill things on the floor, and the dogs come and eat. You know what she's saying? She's saying, if all I get is crumbs from your table, I'll glory in those crumbs. Because I deserve nothing. And the crumbs of your grace are more than I could ever earn or ever achieve or ever deserve. Here's the third ingredient of bold faith it's humility. I think we've done violence to our faith. I think we've taken this theology that has at its center a message of undeserved favor. The message of Christianity is, I get grace and love and mercy that I could have never achieved and never earned and never deserved. And we've turned this faith into an occasion for pride. We pride ourselves in our theological knowledge. We pride ourselves in our biblical literacy. We pride ourselves in our ministry and our regular attendance and our giving and we look down on others less than us. How could we take this message and turn it into an occasion for pride? But we do. And we're more concerned about me being noticed. We're more concerned about station. We're more concerned about uh, prominence. Than we are about the amazing truth that none of us, none of us, not one of us deserve one moment of grace. It is only ever a gift. I love this woman. I love her desperation. I love her focused hope. I love her humility. As I was thinking about today, I thought about one of my sons, we gave birth, Lowell and I did, to a son who didn't understand the concept of gifts. We would look for a gift for him and he would end up putting the gift aside and playing with the box. It drove us crazy. So one Christmas, Lowell and I went on a quest for the quintessential, quintessential I can say it. It's the mustache, it holds down my lip. The quintessential Justin gift. We found it. We were so excited with this toy. We were sure he would play with it. That Christmas, when it came time for him to open that gift, we were surely more excited than he would have ever been. Uh, The magic moment came. He tore into the gift like a little boy would, not thinking of recycling. And he actually began to play with the toy. I had such... A feeling of victory. I went into another room uh, to uh, get something to drink. I was in there for a couple minutes. I came out, and he was sitting in the box. Now, maybe you're wondering why is this man telling us this cute family story at this moment? Well, listen. You have been given the most awesome gift that could ever be given. It's gorgeous from every perspective. It is the gift of gifts. It's the one gift that every human being needs, whether he knows it or not. It's the one gift that has the power to radically change everything about you. It's the gift of God's grace. But hear what I'm about to say, I'm convinced in the face of that gift, there are many Christians who are willing to play with the box. They're willing to have a little bit of Sunday morning Christianity. They're willing for a little bit of theological knowledge, a little bit of biblical literacy, occasional moments of ministry. They're not, in desperation and hope and humility, holding on to that gift of grace with both hands, saying, I'm not going to let go of this gift of grace till it's done everything that God intended for it to do in my life. I'm just that desperate. I'm just that hopeful. I'm just that humble. No, so many of us play with the box. Do you have bold faith? Bold faith that runs to Jesus no matter what and won't let go? Or are you playing with a box? Are you afraid of desperation? Are you confused about hope? Do you find humility uncomfortable? You say, Paul, okay, where do I get this kind of faith? Well, I have good news for you. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace have you been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Even this faith is his gift. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never Exercise this kind of faith. Don't run away from God this morning. Run to him. Say, I want to believe in you. I want to be just that desperate. I want to be just that hopeful. I want to humbly say, I need you. Maybe you're a believer, but your faith is fickle. It's timid. It's up and down. It's riddled with doubt and fear. Again, I would say to you, don't run from your Savior. Run to Him. And receive the gift that only He can give. My prayer for you is that you would be more like this unnamed Gentile woman than you would be like those prominent, well-known Pharisees, that you would be desperate, and you would be hopeful, and you would be humble, and you'd have a faith that doesn't quit because of difficulties, doesn't quit because people misunderstand you, but presses forward and presses forward and presses forward. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are that this little moment in the life of Jesus with this Gentile woman has been recorded for us because it reminds us what faith is all about. Lord, forgive us for turning this message of undeserved favor into a reason for pride. Forgive us for putting our hope in other things. Forgive us for doing everything we can to convince ourselves that we're not desperate. And Lord, may we run to you and find rest in you that can be found nowhere else. We pray these things for the sake of your children for the furtherance of your kingdom, and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. We'd like to close uh, with the same song of response we've uh, been learning the past couple of weeks. If you look on the back page of your worship folder, you'll see, Oh Great God.